Hello and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Your Life, A Brief History. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Goodman. Hey everybody, today's scripture reading is from Colossians 1, verse 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature, every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. God bless the reading of his word. Well, welcome to history class. It's been a little while since some of you have heard those words, right? But uh, today's history lesson is going to be a little interesting because it's not a history about a famous war, famous battle, not a history about a civilization. This history lesson is about your life. And the interesting thing is that it's also the history lesson about the life sitting next to you. And it's also the history lesson about the life sitting on the other side of the auditorium from you. This is a history lesson about your life with God. This history lesson is taught by Professor Paul and his lesson notes are found in Colossians chapter one in the verses that Ethan read to us, verses 21, 22, and 23, where Paul talks about what you were and what you are and what you will be in relation to God. And so I want you to find your sermon notes and a pen or a pencil, and let's write some things down. First of all, I was alienated from God. That's a word about your past. I was alienated from God. Look at verse 21. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, admittedly, those are strong words. And some of us in here who are not believers, we would, we would say, well, that doesn't describe my life. And many of us in here who are believers, we would look back and say, this is really not an accurate way to describe the life I, I used to live. But we need to understand what Paul was trying to get at. He was not saying, Christians do not teach, that without Christ, you're the worst you could possibly be. And once you become a Christian, you're the best you could possibly be. I mean, that's not true. And it's also not what the Bible teaches. But I think what Paul was getting at here is similar to what C.S. Lewis was getting at. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford English professor. And one of his writings, he said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still in him. When a man is getting worse, He understands his own badness less and less. You see, what he's trying to tell us here is that the closer we get to the holiness of God, the more we understand the holiness of God, the more we realize how in trouble we are without God, which means that sometimes it's only after we become a believer and we start developing in the faith that we understand really what danger we were really in, what risk we were really in, and what was really truly troubling about our lives. It's usually only after that, and we start uh, developing an appreciation for what God has done. So the Apostle Paul is telling us in strong terms, but accurate terms, that we were alienated from God, we were separated from Him because of our sin, 
And Jesus helped us understand this in a great way. Jesus was a master teacher and he didn't just teach in principles, he also taught in parables. And one of his parables, he gave two roles to play. All his parables were designed to get us to come to his perspective, to see things from his way of seeing things. And so he wanted us to understand that when he sees humanity, he sees all of humanity divided into only two groups. And so in, in Luke chapter 18, we read this, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. I've told you before that in the first century world, tax collection was a very corrupt and corrupting business. You may not like the tax collection process in our day and age, but just understand in, in the Roman era, a, a person could buy a franchise to, to uh, collect taxes in a certain area. And so that was a very corrupting type of thing to do because if you were a Jewish man who did that, then you were likely involved in extortion of your fellow neighbors and you were involved in collaboration with the hated Roman Empire who employed you to collect taxes on their behalf. And so this was actually uh, the worst person that Jesus could have put into the story up against this Pharisee. And Jesus said, take your pick, you're either one or the other. That's the reason that Jesus told this story. He told this story for you to say, which one am I? Now, some of us, we would say, well, isn't there a third person? I really don't feel like I'm as corrupt as this tax collector, but I don't think I'm as prim and self-righteous as this Pharisee. Isn't there another choice here? But Jesus says, no. Jesus said, if you don't see yourself like this tax collector, broken in need of God, then guess which role you're playing you're praying, playing that prim and self-righteous Pharisee. There are only two options. Which one will you choose? We need to recognize that as well. If you're wanting a relationship with God, you have to recognize the dark truth about yourself. If you have a relationship with God, you need to recognize the dark truth about yourself. Without Christ, you're sunk. Without Christ, you're in trouble. And when you're not living in alignment with Christ, even today, you're going to do things that are in rebellion against God alienating yourself from him. We need to recognize this so that we can actually live life successfully and live life honestly. We were alienated from God. That's the first point of this history lesson. That's your past. But let's write this down. I am reconciled to God. That's the truth about your present in Jesus Christ. You are reconciled to God. Paul wrote this in verses 21 and 22. Once you are alienated from God, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. I was alienated from God, I am reconciled to God. And very specifically he says, I'm reconciled to God by Christ's physical body nailed to the cross. Isn't that interesting? So many people assume that 
the whole point of Jesus's life was that he was a great moral teacher, you know, like Gandhi, like Muhammad, like the Buddha. He was a great moral teacher. Or he was somebody who, by his example, showed us the way to live. Or he was somebody who laid down some great principles for us to follow. Now, all of those things are true up to a point, but they don't get us to the central truth of Jesus's life. Do you know who's able to get us to the central truth of Jesus's life? People who are hearing impaired, people who are in the deaf community. You know, I write a, um, a, uh, a blog post on a regular basis, a, a devotional, goes out to about 700 people on, on the weekend. And this past weekend, I wrote about my mom and two of her siblings, two of her sisters. Of my mother's nine siblings, two of them are hearing impaired, they're deaf. And they married men who were hearing impaired. And I always found it fascinating when I was growing up to see my mom communicate with my two deaf aunts. Because as I'm sure you know, that uh, in the uh, hearing impaired community, they don't spell out every letter of every word with the basic alphabet of hand language. They use broad concepts, broad signs or symbols to communicate entire concepts. And so my mom would place her hand like she was placing it on the visor of a boy's baseball cap and that symbolized boy or a rocking motion of the arms would symbolize baby. Uh, when my, uh, one of my aunts would come into the room with this kind of sleepy shuffle in the morning, my mom would uh, put her hands into fists and wind the right hand over the, the, the left fist and then point with a questioning look and that meant would you like some coffee? symbolizing the grinding motion of an old coffee bean grinder. It entire, an entire question was communicated without words. And an entire concept is communicated about Jesus without words in the hearing impaired community. I'm, I'm gonna put Marilyn and Philip on the spot here, but would y'all stand up and have Philip tell us what the word for Jesus is? All right, did you see what he did there? So you can do it yourself, putting the middle finger of the right hand into the open palm of the left hand and then the middle finger of the left hand into the open palm of the right hand. Thank you so much. You did great. <laughs> um, so isn't that interesting? With all the words we in the hearing world have at our disposal to talk about Jesus, many of us have missed the central message of Jesus's life. But without any words at all, when the hearing impaired want to talk about Jesus, they rivet attention to the place where the nails went into his hand. They rivet attention to the cross. Now this is what we find in Colossians chapter 1 as well. The Apostle Paul is taking us to the cross. He's taking us to the physical body of Jesus nailed to the cross. And he says, this is the place and this is the way that we got reconciled to God. Our sin alienated us from God. Our sin separated us from a holy God. But God is not just a holy God, he's a loving God. And he didn't just leave us in our sins. In Jesus, he reconciled us back to himself by taking away that thing which alienated us from him, our sin, letting it die with Jesus on the cross so that we might be united to him. You know, it's such a challenge to try to communicate this truth in our world today. Those of us who are raised with this, those of us who are raised singing songs about this, we don't get that we are increasingly missionaries 
in a culture where we are the minority players. We are the people who have a minority understanding of God and an understanding of Jesus anymore, unlike maybe the culture that you were raised in. It has changed from under your very feet. John Stackhouse wrote about this in a book some years ago. He wrote, I sat in a pew on a Sunday afternoon recently awaiting the start of my son's piano recital. Their teacher had rented a church for the occasion and the families of her pupils, some of whom apparently had not been in church for some time, if ever, were staring at the images all around them. As a father and daughter behind me began to remark on the pictures they saw, I was struck again by this basic principle of Christianity's strangeness. Isn't Christianity weird, the teenager said to her father in a stage whisper. I mean, all these pictures of a dead guy on a cross, all this blood and suffering and stuff. Yeah, her father replied with a nervous chuckle. It's gross, isn't it? I don't get it. And then Stackhouse added, figuring out why this man and his daughter don't get it is the task of the listening Christian friend. So it's important for us not just to bemoan the fact that the culture we were raised in no longer gets the understanding of Jesus that we were raised with. We need to be the listening Christian friend who helps people make the transition and understand why the cross is so central to our story. Now somebody who did a really good job of that well ahead of our time was a man I've already mentioned, C.S. Lewis. He was not only an Oxford professor who gave a lot of lectures on, uh, 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 on English, but he also gave some lectures on Christianity and he wrote some novels, including some children's novels, one called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I did a study through the Chronicles of Narnia back in the fall for one of our Sunday night studies, and, and, the, and, the, and the one that starts it all off is the one he first wrote in the Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is a story about four English children whose names are Edmund and Lucy and Peter and Susan, and they stumble into the world of Narnia through a wardrobe on their uncle's estate. But when they get into this magical, mysterious land, they find that it is under the control of an evil witch who has taken over rule and governance of the land. And uh, they hear, though, that a lion named Aslan is on the move. And they quickly discover that Aslan, this lion, is the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Clearly, what Lewis is trying to do here is give us a picture of Jesus. Now, Edmund, the youngest boy of the four, commits a treacherous act, and the witch claims her right to his life because as the emperor beyond the sea has set things up, somebody who commits an act like this deserves to die. Now, she's not really trying to obey the emperor beyond the sea at this point. She's not trying to honor his law. She's just trying to get rid of all four of these children before they fulfill a prophecy that will end up bringing an end to her reign in Narnia. But whatever her motivation is, the end result is going to be death for Edmund. In a private arrangement, Aslan offers the witch his life in exchange for Edmund's life. Now this delights the witch even more. And while they are hidden on the edge of a clearing, the two little girls, Susan and Lucy, watch in horror as the lion gives himself up to be humiliated by the witch's army. They shave off his royal mane, they kick him, they muzzle him, they finally bind him upon a stone table. And the witch raises the stone knife above her head, ready to bring it down into the lion's heart. And the little girls avert their eyes and look away because this is a children's story after all. 
And then in triumph, because they've murdered Aslan, they go off to get rid of the rest of the children. And Lucy and Susan come out of hiding at this point, and they move closely to the murdered body of the lion Aslan, and they weep inconsolably. But overnight, the night gives way to dawn, and at the dawn, they hear this great cracking, and they look behind them, and the stone table has been cracked in half, and Aslan is standing alive. And he lets them know that the witch only knew part of the law of the emperor beyond the sea. If she had looked carefully enough and closely enough, he said, she would have known that if a willing, innocent victim stood in the place of a traitor, that the stone table would be broken in half and death itself would be reversed. Now, what is Lewis doing here? He's telling the story of the gospel in ways that our culture can understand. Think about it. Any story you see today of sacrifice, of one giving himself up for another so that that person might be rescued, isn't every one of those stories that we love just taking us back to the great story, the story of the cross? So we need to understand then what God has done for us. A holy God, uh, as we have been alienated from a holy God because of our sin, but that holy God did not leave us alienated. He came down and did the work himself of taking our sin upon Jesus, upon himself on the cross. But now back to this history lesson, because this history lesson is unique. This history lesson not only tells you about your past and about your present, this history lesson tells you about your future too. So you were alienated from God and you are now reconciled to God, but write this third point down, I will be presented to God. That's your future, I will be presented to God. Paul wrote in verse 22, he has reconciled you for this reason, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So Paul mixes imagery here of the courtroom and the temple. He says you will be presented to God. That's a, a courtroom image of being presented before a judge. But you will be with it, uh, that you will be without fault. So again, that's a courtroom image. But then he uses imagery from the Old Testament temple. He says you will be holy and you will be without blemish. And so what Paul is doing is mixing together this imagery to help us understand what is coming for us, that you and I will be presented before the holy God of the universe, but we will be regarded as holy and without blemish, blameless. Why? Because we straightened up, we decided to fly right, we turned over a new leaf, we decided to do right when we used to do wrong. Well, all of those things are important, but that's not where our standing comes from. Our standing comes from what Jesus has done for us. Jesus died in our place. He bore our sin away. And because of that, we can be confident that when we die and stand before God, we will be presented to him, not condemned by him, presented to him as a child in the faith. And that's good news, absolutely good news. We need to understand then, as that old song that we used to sing puts it, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. It's not what I try to do for God, it's what God has done for me and I simply cling to what God has done for me and I will eventually be presented to him. But now here's the thing, in that song we sing, cling is in the present tense. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I continue to cling. 
You see, in other words, it's not just some one act that you do in the past and then you're done with that and you can move on to other things. That's not the way things are presented here. Look at verse 23. We will be presented to God, he says, if you continue in your faith. Now let me say this really clearly. I believe in the security of the believer. What some people sometimes call once saved, always saved, or the perseverance of the saints. It's in the Bible, and I believe it. But I want you to understand that there are some people who teach it in such a way that it is thin soup that will not nourish your soul. When people teach that all you got to do, you see, is you walk an aisle, and you sign a card, and you get dunked in a tank of water, and you get presented to a church as a new Christian, brother, you're in. That is not the beautiful doctrine of the security of the believer. That is not the beautiful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Let me, let me describe it this way. Let's say that um, after the service was up and you were going to come and talk with me, meet with me after the service in our coffee fellowship, and as you approach me, you hear me talking with a man, and uh, you come into the middle of the conversation and you hear me say, to this man, now, now let me uh, get this straight. I, I didn't know you were married. I've been here 20 years. I've never seen your wife. Oh, well, she hasn't been here during those last 20 years. And I go, what do you mean? And he says, oh, well, we're not together. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that you're divorcing. No, no, we're not divorcing. I love her. I told her that 30 years ago on the wedding day. I still do, but you're not together. Well, no, she's doing her thing. I'm doing my thing. She's in Arizona where we were raised, but 20 years ago I told her I wanted to move to Austin. She didn't want to, so I said, I'll see you later. And I headed over here to Austin. Now, I say, now, I've just got to get this straight. You've been married for 30 years, right? Uh, but you haven't lived together for the last 20 years, right? She lives in Arizona doing her thing. You live here in Austin doing your thing. But you still love her. Oh, yeah, I still love her. In fact, one day we're going to see each other again. I'm looking forward to that time when we're going to go to a beautiful retirement center. I hear it has streets of gold. <laughs> now, listen, if you walked in on a conversation I was having with somebody like that, wouldn't you think there was something odd about that marriage? Wouldn't you think there was something inauthentic about that marriage? And yet, isn't that the way some people teach the security of the believer. 20, 30 years ago, you said yes to God. But since that point, you've been doing your thing. He's been doing his thing. You hope to get together with him in that great retirement center in the sky. But until then, you're on your own. He's on his own. That's not the security of the believer. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling and continue to cling and remain clinging. That's, that's what we need to understand. And, and so the Apostle Paul tells us here that we need to continue in this conviction that we first started with. We need to continue to believe it and understand it and hold on to it. So this is history 101. Your life with God. Your past, I was alienated from God. Your present, I am reconciled to God. The, 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 your future, I will be presented to God. Now, here's one more thing I want you to write down on your sermon notes. Next to point one, I want you to write, I admit this. 
I was alienated from God. I admit this. Next to point two, I want you to write, I value this. I am reconciled to God. And I value this. I treasure it. And next to point three, I want you to write down, I expect this. I will be presented to God. I expect this. People who say these three things in response to these three truths experience revival. If enough people within a single church say these three things about these three statements, that church can be said to be in revival. If enough churches are filled with enough people who say those three things to those three statements, a community, a nation, can be said to be in revival. Revive us again, Lord. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a message titled, Ministry Matters. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.